Welcome to ASME TechCats, where we bring you the innovators, the innovations, and the issues that push the envelope of engineering. I'm Carlos Gonzalez, Special Project Manager at Mechanical Engineering Magazine. And in this episode, we'll be speaking with Milo Bors and Nick Albanese from Bloomberg NEF. We'll be discussing the current industry outlook of electric and automated vehicles, how governments and manufacturers continue to foster EVAV adoption, and how the future of the automotive market will continue to evolve. Bloomberg NEF recently released its EV outlook for 2021. In the report, there it was very detailed, a breakdown of how electric vehicles will be impacted by battery development, by infrastructure, by policy changes. Nick, why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about the report and where we are today on the road to full EV adoption? Absolutely. So the electric vehicle outlook is essentially our outlook for all of road transport at BNEF in which we look at how people and goods will move through 2040. And I think the most important thing to note is it's also not just an outlook for electric vehicles, but also an outlook for shared and autonomous mobility, as well as the impacts of electrification and intelligent mobility on adjacent markets like electricity demand and battery demand, as you mentioned, uh, and of course, oil demand. Uh, I think what's really exciting is that even with the rapid growth and and all the hype that we've seen in electric vehicles and intelligent mobility, particularly over the past five years, um, it's important to note that both of these vectors of change, so to speak, are still in very early stages. So if you look at electrification, um, although about 40% of bus as well as two and three wheeler sales globally in 2020 were electric, and that's pretty remarkable. If you look at the passenger vehicle segment, only about 4% of sales were electric and just 1% of vans and trucks were electric. So varying degrees of progress so far in road transport today. And then if you look at intelligent mobility, even though there are now about 1.3 billion users of of ride-hailing services and around 400-plus thousand fleet-based car-sharing vehicles deployed in cities around the world, we estimate that only about 3 to 5% of total passenger vehicle kilometers are being delivered by these new forms of mobility, these alternatives to private car ownership. So still a lot of growth potential for these new forms of mobility, just if you think about the low penetration rate that we're at today. So we've done this report for about six years now. You know, if you zoom back to 2016, EV sales were just around 716,000 units. Um, Last year, they hit a new record, surpassing 3 million units for the first time. So certainly an exciting time to be covering the market. Yeah, that's one thing from the report that stood out to me, you know, being carbon free, net zero, carbon zero is something that's happening within many industries. One industry that we cover, particularly in manufacturing, has been a big topic of discussion for anyone that attended virtually Hanover Mesa Fair, for example. There were several companies talking about being carbon zero. So could you describe the difference between the net zero scenario and then in your report, you also list the economic transition scenario? How do those differ? I think for more and more governments around the world, the aim is to move towards net zero by 2050. Now, we said 2050 here as a target, but this differs a little bit between governments uh, around the globe. The Chinese government, for instance, said 2060. Some governments haven't really set those targets yet. Um, The European Union is especially very much focusing on this. And so as a date, middle century, we took 2050. What does it take to get to net zero by then? And what would have to happen? And we compare that with our 
existing scenario that we have been building on for the last couple of years, which is our economic transition scenario. And I think it's important to point out that this is our techno-economic transition scenario. So we look at what technology trends do we see happening and how can we extrapolate those into the future? How does that relate to economic developments? Cost coming down uh, is a very important factor there for us to take into account with new technology scaling up. And what we dare do is we basically don't expect changes within uh, the policy environment to happen because this can be a huge driver. And this also would have to be a huge driver when you're talking about how to reach net zero. But in the economic transition scenario, we really look at a cost optimization pathway, let's say. One other thing to point out is that the electric vehicle outlook spans all of road transport. So we also look at trucks, we look at two and three wheelers, at buses, etc. And we also look at the impacts that this has. So what does it mean for battery demand and metals demand, for instance, is an upcoming topic of really big interest electricity demand, oil demand, maybe even hydrogen demand, and the impact on CO2 emissions. And what I think we'd like to focus on here is on the um, passenger car, especially in the United States, in Europe as well. This is the major form of transport. Uh, 80-90% of road transport is basically the passenger car. And so this is by far also the biggest impact factor on all those other components that I mentioned, such as batteries, electricity demand, oil, et cetera. So just to very quickly give you a little bit of an idea of the methodology of the economic transition scenario, this exists of six steps, basically. The first step is that we're trying to develop an outlook for the future car demand. And so this takes into account factors um, such as demographics, economic developments in different regions around the world, and also the technology development around ride-hailing, car sharing, and at some point, robo-taxis as well. And so what do these alternative modes of transport, how can they affect future car demand? So the next step that we take is that we look at the electric vehicle adoption. And here we really start with a short-term forecast. So we really look at what is the technology readiness right now? What are in the short term the policy measures that we know exist in different countries? What is the infrastructure rollout? What vehicles are coming to market according to announcements of electric car makers or generally automakers? And so we're making this short-term forecast, and that gives us a starting point to have an understanding of where's the market going in the next couple of years. In this case, 2025 onwards, so let's say in five years' time, that is where our scenario modeling starts. And that is where we take into account the price parity between vehicle categories, by which I mean which car, which drivetrain type basically is cheaper. And there's a huge spread across the market in all different vehicle types from small minis to large SUVs. And some are more premium, some are more uh, mass market. So there's a huge differentiation there. And so those price points will also happen at different moments. And it also means that you have different consumer pockets. And so we take the distribution of different consumer pockets into account, basically. So we gather this data for the different markets. And we're trying to map basically the price parity between the vehicles over time on these consumer pockets and how this develops in different regions around the world. That gives us a addressable market. And based on these different factors, 
what we're doing is we're calibrating our model in such a way that it aligns with our short-term forecast, that it aligns with different factors of technology readiness that we see happening, and that it makes economic sense based on these consumer pockets. And that is our final adoption curve for the economic transition scenario. Now, when we look at the net zero scenario, we take a top-down approach. So this was a bottom-up approach. And for net zero, we take a top-down approach. What we basically say is like, okay, this is where our economic transition scenario is at in 2050. How much further do we need to bring down internal combustion vehicles to hit net zero in 2050? And basically, our fleet is around 40% internal combustion vehicles still by 2050 in our economic transition scenario. So what we're basically saying is like, okay, what does it mean to get to 100% zero emission vehicles? And we look at different steps along that pathway. So we know our endpoint, which is 100% zero emission vehicle fleet by 2050. We know different steps that have to happen in between. And that is where we draw our pathway basically in between. And we look at what this scenario means and how this affects the different impacts that I discussed earlier, such as electricity demand, charging, oil, et cetera. So that's basically how our two scenarios work and how they relate to each other. Thank you for that explanation. I love both approaches because I think, Nick, you had mentioned it earlier. One takes into impact technology and the other one takes into impact more of what government and regulations and policies can do to impact the drive. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Absolutely. So sort of the, I guess the impetus for the the net zero scenario is that based on our analysis of those underlying techno-economic trends that we're mapping out in our economic transition scenario, we see electrification increasing rapidly through 2040. But even with that rapid growth, we think that only about 60 plus percent of new car sales will be electric in 2040. So that's good from uh, the perspective of trying to boost the market. But if you're ultimately concerned about tackling climate change, and I think that's fair to say that that's the main reason that a lot of governments around the world have been um, subsidizing and and regulating the EV market, then you'll need additional growth um, before 2040. So certainly still a big gap to goal, even with um, the relatively optimistic outlook that we have. So then let's start from the technology standpoint. What technological factor is then the biggest driver for EV adoption? Is it battery technology? Are we talking about the um, efficiencies in car development or lighter materials, lighter metals, alternative manufacturing processes? What technology or technological advancement is going to be key to getting us to a higher EV adoption rate? Yeah, I I think I can take this question and um, to answer it very briefly, batteries are the major driver. Um, It's a major driver that we've seen in the last 10 years, basically, what we've seen happening is, uh, so what we do at BNEF since 2010, we've been doing a a battery price survey that we're also part of the data we publish publicly every year, we're known for is real battery price data that we gather via NDAs with companies across the globe within the battery supply chain. So both buyers and suppliers. And we come to a weighted average price. And we've seen this decreasing from over $1,000 per kilowatt hour in 2010, or almost 1,200 actually, to below $140 per kilowatt hour in 2020. So that's really almost a tenfold decrease in battery price. And that's really driving 
that market for battery electric vehicles, because that means that both the cars can become cheaper. It also means that battery packs relatively can become bigger. And we've done some research on that as well. And we actually see that the prices of electric vehicles have not come down as much, but especially the battery packs and does the range, which is a huge factor for many for many consumers, is does it have enough range? We really see that range increase rapidly um, over the last couple of years with that battery price decreasing. Now, it's not just battery price, it's also the quality of the battery, uh, battery density. So you need less volume and kilograms basically to still uh, get out the same kilowatt hours out of the battery pack. So that's purely all on the engineering side. And related to that, when we look at the car, there are other factors of uh, where engineering plays a huge role in really bringing down that cost. And that is the um, power electronics within the vehicle. So the engine, et cetera, and then also the electric vehicle, the EE interface, basically with the digital side of the car, which is becoming more and more an important factor, especially when we're starting to talk about connected car or even uh, autonomous vehicles later on. So these are multiple factors actually that are driving down the cost of the vehicle and at the same time improving the quality of the vehicle and you really see like some of the best vehicles on the market right now on many factors are outpacing their internal combustion competitors and then from the other side of things what factors are going to impact the ecosystem of ev adoption so whether we're talking about more charging stations, um, government incentives, like you had mentioned earlier, Nick, subsidizing the technology for it to make it more affordable, or are we talking about even ride-sharing services? What ecosystem factors play the maybe the more well-known or even obscure impacts into EV adoption? Yeah, I mean, I think you list two really good enablers of, of growth there or, or potentially roadblocks. So, you know, charging infrastructure deployment is incredibly important. That's actually one of the reasons why our outlook doesn't go from, you know, a 10% EV sales penetration to 100% even after EVs become cost competitive with internal combustion engine vehicles. Because Based on the deployment we see today, we expect there to be a, a lack of charging infrastructure, uh, at least publicly available charging infrastructure in some major markets. So just to provide some context on that, as of 1H 2021, there are about 1.5 million public EV charging connectors available to EV drivers around the world. You know, that's up from under 1 million in 2019. So growth is picking up, but it's far from what would be needed to support the EV outlook that, that we're talking about in our annual report. So we think you need about 25 million publicly available EV charging connectors in order to support our economic transition scenario. So that's a huge investment opportunity. Um, that's, a, that's good news, of course, not only for oil and gas companies that are investing in the sector, but also utilities and, of course, pure play operators as well as automakers. So we think it's about $590 billion through 2040. So there are some good developments on this front. Just to be clear, um, most recently, the Biden administration has set a goal for the U.S. to have 500,000 public EV charging stations by 2030. So that'd be about a five-fold increase from where we are today. So that sort of pushes things in the right direction. But again, we think you'd need about 1.5 million in the U.S. by 2030 to support the level of electrification that we think is likely to come to fruition based on those techno-economic trends that we're tracking. So charging infrastructure, it's a huge investment opportunity, but we're going to need deployment to pick up in the coming years to support higher EV sales. In terms of other factors, I think ride-hailing decarbonization targets are 
a really interesting one because if you look at the global passenger EV market today, highly concentrated in China, Europe, and the United States, and then a really long tail of smaller markets. And to be frank, there's almost no EV penetration in emerging markets or some of the larger auto markets in emerging markets like Brazil, uh, Russia, et cetera. So the good news is that most of the major ride hailing companies have set targets to fully decarbonize their fleets by either 2030 in developed markets or by 2040 globally. And so there's an opportunity for ride hailing companies like Uber, Lyft, Cabify, Didi, Bolt, Gojek, and others to be first movers in EV deployment in emerging markets. That means they're likely to be investing in public charging infrastructure that could help jumpstart EV adoption by private consumers. So I think that that's something that could boost the market. And then, of course, as you mentioned, policy is going to remain important, particularly for the next five years. That's because that's the period through which we expect EVs to be, on average, more expensive than comparable internal combustion engine cars. So given that gap to goal I mentioned between our economic transition scenario and our net zero scenario, I think it's safe to assume that you might see additional policies put in place to either mandate higher EV sales or perhaps more likely to make that transition a little less costly to to private consumers as well as businesses. So a few interesting factors here at play that that we're writing about uh, on a regular basis at BNEF. I love, you know, your point here about charging stations and how many, the the number that we'll need for, to create that infrastructure. I I recently, well, back in in April, the Nature Energy Journal released that 20% of people are returning their EV cars because of the lack of charging, whether it be in-home or public. And it's funny because I live in New York City, and what I didn't expect was that there was an infrastructure kind of creation here with public garages. And there are charging stations now in almost every public garage that you can enter. And so if you live in a major city, there's maybe a higher chance that you'll buy an EV car because there are more charging places rather than if you live maybe in, let's say, a rural area. Um, The study I read was in California where people live maybe not so close to major cities and they lacked the charging capacity or capability versus a major city. I mean, I find that interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, if you zoom in on that, that data point I gave for the U.S., about 100,000 publicly available charging stations, there's a lot of challenges with that. So about a third are in California. Not all of them, of course, are high-speed chargers. Uh, a good portion are level two chargers that are better for, you know, top-off charging at your grocery store rather than enabling a, a long-distance road trip. And of course, some are operated by Tesla, and then others are sort of more universally accessible to to folks that are driving other EVs. So quite a few sort of thorny issues to work out in the charging space. But the good news is it's a big investment opportunity, and it looks like policy is going to create some new opportunities in the coming years. So one thing that we had touched upon, and I believe, um, Milo, you had mentioned it earlier, is how autonomous vehicles can impact EV adoption. A lot of Um, studies and industry reports have said that EV adoption is closely linked with AV adoption. Can you give me your thoughts on that and how one impacts the other? The main thing that I mentioned here is basically the electric interface, so the EE interface. 
and how to basically set that up. And because we're moving towards a future of more electrification, what you see is that testers right now are more and more already testing with electric vehicles. Another factor playing a role there is actually simply that they make a lot of kilometers and electricity is just simply much cheaper than um, fuel. So if you're driving those kilometers, why not drive them electric? Yeah, Milo is absolutely right. So there's the the clear economic benefit to using an electric drivetrain rather than an internal combustion engine-based one. And so if you, if you look at the California data, for example, that's, of course, been the hotbed for autonomous vehicle testing globally for at least the past five years, although China is beginning to, to challenge California's position in terms of that. But yeah, if, if you look at that data, about 76% of all the autonomous miles driven in California have been in electric vehicles, so either pure electric or plug-in electric hybrid. And if you look at the corporate strategies of most of the robo-taxi developers today, so Zooks, Cruise, Waymo, uh, Argo AI, Baidu DD, etc., most of these players are now you know, either hinting at or committing to use fully electric cars. The last question that I want to ask for you both is, based off of the EV Outlook report and just your own personal experience and knowledge, what can we expect in the next five to 10 years for this market? Obviously, EV cars are going to be continue to be sold and pushed out into the consumer market and even into the industrial market with electric, perhaps trucks or even more public transportation that will be electrified. But from your experiences, what can we expect in the upcoming years? Yeah, so I can tell a little bit more about the EV side in that sense. Um, and I think one of the main points here to mention is um is price parity and the other is maybe some uh, on the adoption shares. And so when we talk about price parity, I mentioned that earlier, which is a major driver in our uh, modeling is basically the, the, the cost parity between electric vehicles and internal combustion cars. Often people think of this as a single point, but it's actually not necessarily a single point. There's multiple points and it actually much more on a distribution. So the three main points here are price parity on a total cost of ownership basis. So if you're taking into account the price of fuel, you're taking into account insurance, maintenance, these kind of factors, then actually there's an advantage there for electric vehicles. And that actually results in a price parity point that comes a couple of years earlier. Then you have the price parity point for the optimal technology. So really like what is the cutting edge technology that is now coming to market? So which automakers are the market leaders and what do we expect from them to, to come out basically in the next couple of years? And then finally, and I think this is the most important one for consumers, that is the mass market price parity point. And that is really like, when is a large range of the market going to be, the electric vehicles going to be similar price um, or at some point even cheaper than internal combustion cars. TCO, we already see in the next couple of years, the top line cars, let's say best in class, we see in especially the large and SUV segment in the United States and Europe, we see it happening around 2023, 2024. And then mass market, we see happening somewhat around 2026, 2027. And this depends on some of the assumptions that you make on vehicle segment. This depends on the battery pack size. So what is the range, smaller range, cheaper car. But we also take into account what are some of the reasonable ranges there. So that is one on the price parity aspect. And the other is actually the adoption. And there we expect, so 
we're now somewhat around 5% of EV adoption globally, global sales. We expect this to be about a third globally by 2030. And we expect this to be nearly 70% by 2040. And this is different in different regions across the globe. So we see Europe leading, China slightly behind that, and the US somewhat following. And then there's other regions around the world where it takes up somewhat longer to pick up. And so in 2030, we expect to grow from 3.1 million to 32 million electric vehicles. And this will be 40% will be the Chinese market. And about the other 50% is somewhat halfway distributed between European and US markets. And the last 10% is the rest of Asia and the rest of the world. And I think from my end, sort of two key things to keep an eye on. The first is what happens with autonomous vehicle and particularly robo-taxi deployment in China. So I mentioned before, California has historically been the, the major test bed for, for AV testing globally. But if you look at what happened in 2020, we saw an explosion of cities across China authorizing autonomous vehicle testing and deployment now over 2025. And there's also been a quick increase in the number of vehicles deployed. It's about 600 cars already operating uh, on, on the streets of China. So it looks like China's AV sector could catch up or even surpass that of the U.S. in, in the coming year, coming two years. So I think that's an exciting space to watch. And then additionally, also in policy, you know, we talked a lot about what governments are doing to incentivize electric vehicle sales, to mandate electric vehicle sales. But I think what's going to be likely over the next few years is that we'll see more governments turning their eye to not just turning over the fleet of cars, but in fact, maybe reducing the overall fleet of cars. So if you just look at what happened between 2015 and 2020, the global passenger vehicle fleet surpassed um, about 1.25 billion units. Uh, that was about a 20% increase. And just in China alone, 100 new million passenger vehicles took to the streets. And of course, most of those were internal combustion engine cars. So the, as the fleet keeps growing, the challenge of, of decarbonizing it becomes even greater. And so I would expect to see new policies put in place that would try to reduce the need for car ownership or increase the cost of car ownership or even simply diminish the utility of car ownership. So, of course, governments could do that through a few routes. They could increase investment in public transit or, or raise car taxes or set aside certain city streets for more efficient forms of mobility. And there are only about 12 major governments that have tentative policies like this in place today. But I think it's something that uh, is safe to see, say we'll, we'll see a lot more activity on in the coming years as, as governments get serious about trying to fully decarbonize the road transport space. Well, I'm excited to see it. I'm a big proponent for electric vehicles. I can't wait to buy my first one. I'm Carlos Gonzalez. Thank you for listening to ASME TechCast. To learn more about the automotive future, please sign up for our upcoming conversation series on electric vehicles, self-driving cars, and smart city infrastructure. Visit go.asme.org slash the automotive future to learn more. That's go.asme.org slash T-H-E-A-U-T-O-M-O-T-I-V-E-F-U-T-U-R-E to learn more. You can find our other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or your favorite podcasting platform.